Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For many companies, 2009 is the year of doing more with less. In struggling economy after struggling economy, managers are being asked to cut costs to satisfy both investors and cash-strapped customers. How can they do it without compromising quality? My name's Adam Jones, and in this management podcast, I'm talking to someone who believes the solution can be found in China. Professor Peter Williamson of the University of Cambridge's Judge Business School believes that frugal and innovative Chinese companies can teach their Western counterparts how to thrive in these difficult times. Peter, welcome to the Financial Times. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Now, for a long time, you've advised foreign companies doing business in China and, more recently, Chinese companies doing business internationally. You're also the co-author of a book entitled Dragons at Your Door, How Chinese Cost Innovation is Disrupting the Rules of Global Competition. What is it about the Chinese approach to managing costs that is so relevant today? Well, I think there are two big things that are happening today that uh, you put your finger on it in a way. It's not just cutting costs. It's actually doing more with less. And the reason I think that's going to be very important in the next round of competition globally is firstly that it's the developing countries, the developing country markets that are really going to be the source of growth in the next phase. And to penetrate those markets, one has to have a level of value for money that is really way beyond what we're used to providing in the West because most of the people who are coming into those growth markets as new consumers, their income is about 5,000 US dollars or three and a half thousand pounds, something like that a year. So they're looking for incredible value for money. So to capture the growth in the next phase, I think we're going to have to provide more for less. And I think the Chinese have something to teach us about that. Uh, The second reason I think it is going to be important in the next phase is that here in the West, you've actually got a group of consumers that haven't done terribly well out of the last boom. I think the top 20% has done extremely well. But if you look at the real income, especially in the United States, it hasn't really moved for a decade. And therefore, you have people who are struggling to pay the bills, and therefore, they're forced to look for extra value for money alternatives. You see that here in the UK as well with the so-called hard discounters, other people in retail that are picking up market share. So I think that if we can learn how to do more with less, that's going to be very important in the next phase of growth. And the Chinese, I believe, have quite a lot to teach us about this, not because they've got some crystal ball or uh, they're, they're fantastic strategists, but simply because in the Chinese market, they've had to provide exceptional value for money in order to unlock the mass market of new low-income consumers that are really driving the growth of China forward. And in what ways have uh, Chinese companies managed to do this, to keep costs down, offer compelling uh, value-for-money products? 
Well, we all know about some of the wild East capitalists that have been cutting corners by cutting quality. I think the, the baby milk scandal is perhaps one of the best examples. But what we studied in preparing the book that you mentioned was the leading Chinese companies who are really distinguishing themselves from other Chinese competitors by changing the equation between cost and value. And we call that cost innovation. And basically, there are three ways that they've been doing that. The first is to take high technology and put it directly into the mass market at a very competitive price level. I think the second thing we see them doing is finding ways to offer the customer a lot of variety and choice and customization, also at very competitive prices. And the third one is perhaps in some ways the most novel. It's the idea that many markets in the West are considered niche. That means there are only a few people want to buy these type of products. They come at a high price because you don't have the scale economies. Therefore, your costs are, are quite high to produce them. And you've got uh, quite limited distribution. And that has been the strategy that has actually, especially here in Europe, been adopted by so many companies that are facing costs, uh, low price competition from other parts of the world. But the Chinese have taken an interesting perspective on that and said that maybe the only reason this is a niche market in the sense that there are few customers is because the price is so sky high and that if we actually manage to cut the price dramatically and some of the cases we might talk about later it's been down by about 50 percent we might be able to explode that niche into a mass market and what kind of companies exemplify those three forms of cost innovation the first one uh, high technology at low cost a very good example is Zhang Jing, the uh, company that makes digital direct x-rays. I think, uh, you know, when you and I first went to the doctor, they used to uh, put the x-rays uh, on photofilm up on a light box. And uh, over time, of course, people said that's very inefficient because if you could digitize it directly, uh, it, it would be easier to store. You could easily get a second opinion from a doctor who wasn't on site. And it's much faster than waiting around for the thing to be done. And that's a technology that was pioneered by companies like Phillips of the Netherlands and General Electric. And, of course, they spent a lot of money on that technology, and so they said that we are going to apply it to applications like heart scans. And they put a very high price tag on these machines, about 400,000 US dollars. Well, the Chinese company looked at this market and said, you know, I don't think we can do anything if we just... Uh, use the high technology at this high-end segment. So what they did is they spent their time thinking about the, how they could re-engineer the technology to bring it into the mass market, to use it for everyday things like chest x-rays and the normal kind of things that are volume throughput in the hospital. Now, they did that a number of ways, firstly by uh, using a slightly different version of the technology uh, which could provide adequate quality for chest X-rays. It's not suitable, really, for the quality you need for a dynamic heart scan, but it was perfectly possible to provide good quality for the normal applications. And the second thing they did, which is interesting, is that the leading Western competitors in this market 
basically bundled the whole thing together. So when you bought a machine, you had to buy a printer and you had to buy a, a server and all sorts of things, which increased the cost enormously. And Chinese basically said, we think we can re-engineer the technology so that it can be plugged into a standard hospital's IT system. So we don't need to buy all this extra equipment. And the amazing thing that they managed to do was get the cost down to just 20,000 US dollars. And what about uh, companies that provide a lot of variety at low cost? And what kind of Chinese companies, uh, again, exemplify that kind of be best practice? good example of that company you probably haven't heard of. It was called Good Baby. Uh, the person that founded it was actually a former principal of a primary school in uh, China. And uh, the government cut off the funding for the school. So he decided that he better make a business with some of the unemployed teachers to try and keep the school going. And the business they alighted upon was pushchairs or strollers, as the American uh, uh, consumers call them. He started out with a fairly standard uh, product range. But over time, what they realized was that because there's a large number of new graduate engineers coming out in China. There'll be about 5 million graduates coming out. About 40% of them are in science and technology each year. Uh, that he could use those engineers in order to produce a bigger variety of these types of products than any of the competitors. Um, they've got around 1,600 varieties of these pushchairs, and that's about four times the level of variety of the nearest competitor in the West. That's an interesting example of saying, look, I'm not just going to use China as a low-cost manufacturing base. The real advantage that's going to differentiate me in China is the ability to use these new graduates to provide higher variety uh, without a big price premium. That's exactly what Good Baby has done. And last year it sold over 300 million US dollars worth of these products, and it uh, has about 40% of the US market. And what about uh, companies that have exploded a niche market into a mass market in China? A lot of companies in the West are caught in this idea that it's a small market because there aren't many people that want to buy it. And a good example of that is these refrigerators that uh, people use to keep their uh, wine at a constant uh, temperature that's, that's good for maturation. And, uh, you know, probably historically only a few people that have uh, got a run of Chateau Lafitte probably bought one of these things, but... Uh, the Chinese looked at this and said, I think actually there are a lot of people out there in the world, especially in the U.S., that might like to have one of these things. But do you know they cost 1,600 U.S. dollars? That's amazingly high for a refrigerator. In fact, it's really a cheap refrigerator, Adam, because it doesn't even have a freezer in it. So the Chinese hire a well-known white goods company in China, looked at this business and said, we think we can re-engineer this product, uh, get rid of some of the fancy woodwork and... Uh, uh, strip it down to its basics, and we think we can put it out in the market at around 750 US dollars. That business grew something like sixfold in the first year because it turns out that a lot of people in America want were willing to buy one of these things. It didn't need to look that fancy because they put it in their garage or their basement. And so what they did is created an entirely new market for, for this product. It's not because of 
a brilliant strategy that they thought of this. But if you go back to 1978 in China, every market was a niche. And therefore, they see the natural progression as niches going to uh, mass markets. You've talked about the enormous uh, number of uh, science and engineering graduates in China who have helped some of these companies to, uh, to, to, to achieve uh, what they've achieved. Obviously, it's a bit more difficult for Western companies, given that they don't have that incredible supply of intellectual manpower to draw on. There are a number of changes that Western companies have to make in order to try to emulate the strategy. And part of that can be done at home and part of that has to be done in China. But I think the first thing that has to happen is a change in mindset. I think while you're always caught in the idea that high technology has to come at a high price, that variety has to come at a hefty price premium, that niche markets are niche markets, one's not going to even apply the great skills and innovativeness that many Western companies have to this cost innovation direction. I think the second thing that uh, Western companies need to do is rethink the way they're using China in their global strategy. You mentioned the large number of engineers and science graduates uh, coming off the universities there. Well, if you're basically seeing China as a low-cost source, the people that you're taking advantage of, uh, using the cost reductions you're taking advantage of, are basically assembly line workers, and you're missing out on the potential benefits of harnessing this very low cost compared to their productivity uh, of engineers. And so one thing to think about there is, should we be using China more in terms of design uh, and innovation and not necessarily to do fundamental R&D, but to do things like customizing our product or taking technology which is already established in our company and looking at how we can bring it to the mass market. But don't companies that move more and more of their operations to China run the risk that they might be eventually elbowed out of their own business by their Chinese partner? I think that's a real danger if you don't manage the process uh, well. I think there are a number of companies, I think Nokia is one of them, have managed this process well. And I think there's a couple of uh, considerations that uh, one needs to look at in, in how to manage that. The first is this issue of technology leakage and partnerships is a serious issue, although the IP protection is improving in China as Chinese companies uh, have more technology. But I think the key to uh, success there is basically not to simply rush in and do a joint venture, but to say, can I really build a strong and loyal local organization in China? So if you look at Nokia, they've spent 15 years building that kind of organization. So they have people that are loyal to them, that see their career with Nokia, and therefore that's not losing the company to, to a potential competitor. Uh, the second thing is not everything, obviously, will, will be moving across. So there are certain segments of the market, certain technologies that cost innovation is very useful in. There are certain areas where that's not the game. Professor Peter Williamson, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. And do join me again on February the 26th when a new management podcast will be ready for download. You can also keep abreast of management issues at the FT's management blog at www.ft.com forward slash management blog.